as Joe alluded to at the beginning of the service, I know there were a lot of folks on the road this last week with it being April School Vacation Week. And as Joe shared, we had a crew from BBC go up to Maine. And thanks to the excellent leadership of uh, Michelle Scott and Tim Couts's excellent expert knowledge, guidance, and direction, and wonderful contributions from many people, including some of our children and our students, the group really got a lot accomplished. And I, do, I, I want to say, I do think it says something about our staff, too, that after the busiest week of the year, uh, all three of our pastors and their spouses and Sharon and Tim Couts, you know, we had four members of our staff immediately basically head up to Maine to help out and to serve, and it just made me feel very good about our team, and it was great to see how much they were able to accomplish, and there's always more to be done, and uh, we may head back to Oceanwood Columbus Day weekend to see if we can do some more. Um, so Jill and I were only there briefly. We were up just for 48 hours, and we were glad we got to be there. And we drove home on Tuesday, and on the way home, uh, we stopped at uh, a place called When Pigs Fly Bakery, uh, which is in Kittery, Maine, because they make wonderful bread and have particular types of bread that Jill and I each like to get. And then we drove a little further, and then we stopped again, and we went out to dinner somewhere, and uh, you know, it just took a leisurely drive home. The night sky was pretty. We were listening to the Red Sox game and talking. And, and I can tell you, though, that when our sons were with us and we were younger, uh, we didn't do road trips quite that leisurely way, usually. Um, it was actually rather different, and especially the longer the drive was. Uh, and maybe your family has been this way when you had kids at home, but we took much more of a NASCAR approach uh, to stops when the boys were younger. You know, you'd stop and you'd pull in and you do what you had to do. You try not to take too long, try not to spend too much, and then get back on the road as quickly again as you could. And, and I thought about that because I thought, you know, that's actually the way some people look at church. Right? No, I mean, some folks look at worshiping God. It, it, it looks like a NASCAR stop on the road of life, if you will. People, you know, I want to pull in, do what I have to do, hope it doesn't take too long, hope I don't have to spend too much, and hope I can get out of here and get back on the road as quickly as possible. Obviously, that's none of you because you're all here or watching. <laughs> I remember one year when uh, it was school vacation week, and we were taking a trip down south, and it was Jill and myself and Greg, and uh, we were heading south on the Monday of school vacation week, and we were in the D.C., Washington, D.C. area, and the traffic was just a nightmare, and we were just stuck, and we weren't moving, it was crawling, and finally I said to Jill, I said, you know, this is crazy, this is crazy, we can sit in this going nowhere, or we can get off, go have dinner somewhere, you know, let an hour or so pass and see if it gets better. So that's what we did. We managed to finally get off the highway, and there was a Cracker Barrel, you know, one of my favorite places. I'm just kidding. It's just a restaurant. It's just there. But there was a Cracker Barrel right there off the exit, so we pulled in, and we had a nice dinner, and we talked, and we relaxed, and everything else. And by the time we returned to the road, and we all felt better, but I said, let's drive over 95 first and just see if it's gotten any better, because this was so long ago, Google Maps was still not quite the thing it is today. And so we drove over 95, saw it was still just a parking lot. So we said, you know what, we're just going to find our way another way. And we ended up going down Route 1 and driving through these small towns in Virginia, and we 
went by Quantico, Virginia, and thought about friends of ours who had been in the United States Marine Corps, who had spent time at Quantico, Virginia, including Hark Cram, who was such a significant part of our church here. And, you know, and we talked about other things. And, you know, worship should be a little bit more like that than a NASCAR pit stop. Worship should be a break from the stress on the road of life, a chance to relax, to feed and nurture our soul and our relationships, and perhaps to go forward with a new outlook or a new perspective and aware of new paths that we might not have seen before. Now, I share all this traveling with you today because today's gospel is about people on a journey. And it begins with two disciples walking slowly, dejectedly, hopelessly from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion. Now, one of them is named Cleopas, who is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, although there is a Clopas referred to in John chapter 19, verse 25, where it says that Mary, the wife of Clopas, was one of the women at the cross. And we don't know whether this is referring to the same person or not. But listen to this journey story from Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other as you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now three days since all these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see him. Then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are. And how slow to be, of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. 
But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the good news for today. You know, in Luke's gospel, all of the resurrection stories happen on the same day. And scholars argue about the exact location of Emmaus. Some say that, well, they think it was like, seven miles to the northwest. Other people say, no, it was over to the east. But what we do know, it was the location of a Roman garrison. And regardless of its exact location, the symbolic significance of moving toward Emmaus is that it is movement away from Jerusalem. And it's movement away from Jesus. So these disciples, we are to hear this in the beginning are deserters. They're deserters. They're fleeing. They are walking away from Jerusalem and Jesus, and they are walking toward Roman power. Now, in Luke's gospel, avoiding Jerusalem is avoiding the true path of Jesus. Right? The whole gospel of Luke is a journey toward Jerusalem. Luke has a special section that begins at the end of chapter 9 that is specifically the journey to Jerusalem that includes some of Jesus' best-known parables. The revealing of Jesus' identity takes place in Jerusalem. The story of Jesus ends in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, the gospel will go forward from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. So in walking away from Jerusalem and walking toward Emmaus, the disciples are abandoning Jesus and his teaching and their mission. And while this passage is often called the road to Emmaus, I think a better title is the road back to faith. Because that's what it's really about. It's about how we find our way back to faith when our faith, our obedience, is wavering and shaky. And most of us, if we're honest, have had times, some of you may be in one right now, when our faith or our obedience is wavering a bit or is a little bit shaky. Now, taking the road back to Jerusalem after Passover, after the crucifixion of Jesus, it's kind of like swimming upstream. It's not the direction most people are moving in. Most people are heading back home, right? They're leaving the city. But for Cleopas and 
his companion to change direction and return to the city. Before that happens, something's got to happen to them to turn them around. And what happens to them gives hope to any of us who are feeling confused, lost, bewildered, anxious, afraid, or just plain empty inside. Because what happens is that Jesus, unrecognized, comes alongside them and travels with them in their pain, in their grief, in their hurt, and in their loss. And in your life, you will encounter times like Cleopas when you are despairing, when you're confused, when you're uncertain. You will. And when you're in those moments, what you need, what I need, what we all need is the help, the support, the guidance of a friend, of a mentor, of a coach, of a spiritual director, someone who can instruct you, who can refresh your spirit and get you moving back on the right direction in life. So while Cleopas and the other disciple are walking slowly and they're talking about everything that's happened to Jesus and trying to make sense of it all, Luke says the risen Christ draws near and starts to walk with them and that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Because we all went, well, why didn't they know who it was? Why didn't they recognize him right away? And their inability to recognize Jesus is evidently not because they don't know what he looks like, although Parenthetically, I think it's interesting that according to the New Testament, Jesus is the most interesting and important person who ever lived. And yet we have no physical description in the New Testament of what he looks like. It's interesting to me anyway. But Luke wants us to understand that their failure to recognize Jesus at this point is because they are spiritually blind. They're spiritually blind. It's not because they didn't know what Jesus looked like. And the unknown traveler asks, what are you discussing with each other as you walk along? Because for you younger people, see, there once was a time in human history before the days of videos and streaming services that when you traveled, you actually had to talk to other people. Oh, my gosh, the horror. Can you imagine? <laughs> and they stood still looking sad. Now, we're never given the name of Cleopas' companion, and I think that's because you are to understand you are the second traveler. You are the second traveler. And you're being asked to journey from an understanding of Jesus' death that causes sadness to a deeper understanding of Jesus' death that actually brings joy. Because perhaps this is a story about the temptation we all face in the face of suffering and death to want to escape to a more secure or comfortable place. Well, of course, Cleopas's question is deeply ironic. Are you the only one who travels in Jerusalem and doesn't know the things that happened there in those days? Because the irony is Jesus is the only one who does know exactly what happened to him in Jerusalem and more importantly, what it does mean. 
He's the only one who knows at this point. Cleopas has no idea what happened. He has all of the facts and none of the meaning. He has all of the facts and none of the meaning. And not only that, but he calls Jesus a stranger in Jerusalem. Now, in one sense, you could say Jesus is a stranger because to the ruling elite, they didn't recognize Jesus. He's crucified outside the city walls. He's a stranger. Well, maybe. But in another sense, Luke would say Jesus is the truest son of Jerusalem ever. The truest son of Jerusalem ever. Luke is the one who tells us back in chapter 2 that when Jesus was just 12 years old, where was he most at home? In his father's house in the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus asks, what things? And he invites Cleopas to tell him about what happened to him in Jerusalem. To me, this is funny. This is humor in the Bible. It's there. You just have to look for it and understand. And so he invites him to, so they said, well, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, can you hear the first Christians just laughing at this part of the story? The thing, who was, key word, a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. Now that statement is true as far as it goes, but again, it doesn't go far enough. Jesus was a prophet, but more importantly, he is, present tense, the Son of God. And what happened to Jesus was not just the murder of one more prophet like John the Baptist. Their description of Jesus runs the risk of reducing Jesus to a reputation in the past. He was this good prophet who did this and then he was killed. They're not remembering him correctly. And they continue. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now they're remembering Jesus as a victim. They say the chief priests and the rulers did something to him as if Jesus had no active choice, no part to play in his death on the cross. They're remembering him simply as a passive recipient of the condemnation of others. And we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. Now they're remembering him as a nationalistic Messiah. But Jesus was sent not only to Israel, he was sent through Israel to all the people and all the nations of the world. So now we know why they're sad. They're sad because their hopes have been dashed. But what they hoped for was not what Jesus was sent for. His mission and their expectations are not the same. And this is still a problem for some disciples and followers of Jesus. Our expectations and understanding of Jesus are not often broad enough, deep enough, or open enough to include all of the mystery and paradox that is Christ. We truly don't know who he really is. So the disciples are sad because they thought Jesus would redeem Israel. Well, he's done exactly that. But they don't see it. They don't recognize it. They don't understand it. They're simply baffled by what has taken place. 
Cleopas and the other disciple have trouble recognizing Jesus in part because they have misunderstood him. They have remembered him as a reputation, as a victim, and as a failure in their eyes. They have all of the facts and none of the meaning. And when you think of Jesus only as a reputation, as a victim, or a failure, and that's it, then like Cleopas, him you will not see. You won't see him. Now, Jesus doesn't appreciate how they're remembering it. And he calls them foolish, which is like as insulting a thing as you can say about someone in the Bible. Because the Bible states in Psalm 14, verse 1, and many other places, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The foolish person interprets life without considering the spiritual dimension. And Cleopas has interpreted Jesus only in social and political terms. He has neglected the spiritual dimension. And Jesus not only calls them foolish, he calls them slow of heart. And in biblical spirituality, the heart is connected to the eyes. The heart is connected to the eyes. When our heart burns or is on fire, spiritually speaking, it's seen in the eyes. It's why Jesus says that the eyes are the window to the soul in another passage. And when we're not in touch with our deepest center, which biblically speaking is our heart, then we cannot see the events of life from a spiritual perspective. So Luke treats these two to a personal tour of the scriptures. Of the many events that take place in the Bible, this is one of them where it's like, I really wish I was there to record it. Because what's frustrating is that Luke tells us that Jesus interprets for them every single passage from the law of Moses and the prophets about himself, but he doesn't tell us what Jesus said. He just tells them that he did it. And I just want to shake Luke and say, come on, help us out here. Well, by now, at the end of this extended interpretive gift from Jesus, Cleopas and his companion are nearing their destination, and they're ready to stop and eat and relax, but Jesus appears to be traveling farther. Because again, spiritually speaking, Jesus is always prepared to go farther than you. However, once he's asked to stay, he immediately agrees. Because when you invite Jesus to stay with you, it shows an openness to him. Even when you're confused, even if like Cleopas and his companion, you're trying to flee from the problems of life, if you invite Jesus to stay with you and to be with you, he will always say yes. I will be with you. And it's around supper time, and it's probably not a surprise that Jesus repeats what he did at the supper just a few days before when he suffered. And in the act of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving bread, after he has opened the scriptures to them, their eyes are opened, and they recognize him. And then he vanishes from their sight. 
They see him then at that moment because their hearts, their spiritual center has been awakened and they could see the world of the spirit. And Jesus opened the scriptures so they could see things in the scriptures that they had not seen before. And isn't that always a cool experience? I don't get to hear a lot of other preachers in person, but I love hearing someone open the scriptures and go into a passage and I sit there and I go, how did I not see that before? Isn't that a cool thing when that happens? I hope that's happened to you at least once or twice. Because I should quit if it hasn't happened. But that's another story. But there is this sense of when Jesus opens the scriptures, then all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, here it is. And they, it's only on the level of the spirit that the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus can be understood. And their understanding takes place on a journey as it does for us as you attempt to follow Jesus and to walk with him. Because Jesus is the one who can help you find meaning in life when you're in the midst of confusion. He can make your heart burn with spiritual fire and give you eyes to see the truth that you couldn't see before. As one author wrote, one's destination is never a place but a new way of seeing things. I think that's such an insightful line. One's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. And as Jesus walks and talks with Cleopas and the other disciple, they receive a new way of seeing things. And their confusion turns to clarity, their despair turns to joy, and the hope for you in Cleopas' story is that you can experience in companionship with Jesus someone who will guide you through your difficult times and seasons. Luke says that same hour they rose up or they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they rose up means that the disciples who have been spiritually dead on their way out of town have now also shared in the resurrection of Christ. Resurrection is not just an event in the life of Jesus. It's an event in the life of his followers. And the risen Christ has done his job. He has brought his followers to a deeper experience of himself and taught them to see and remember him for who he truly is. Not a prophet who was, not a reputation in the past, not a victim, but the Son of God. And what they had seen as the end of hope was in fact the beginning of everlasting hope. Cleopas and his companion who had been so sad and dejected and confused as they walked away from Jerusalem and Jesus. And at the end of the story they are transformed and changed. They get back on the road to Jerusalem back toward the mission, back towards the witness to which they're called, and they do it with the long and eager strides of people who have good news to share. And that's what disciples do. We take the road back to Jerusalem and tell others of our life-changing experiences with Jesus on the road of life. And how, about how Jesus walks with us stays with us, even when we're disobedient, even when we're running away, confused, spiritually blind. 
and how Jesus teaches us the meaning of the scriptures, helping us to understand them and giving us spiritual sight. How Jesus is known among friends through the breaking and the sharing of bread. And their excitement moves them naturally to share their story with their brothers and sisters who are in a similar state of despair and confusion. If you're confused, if you're despairing, if you're grieving, if you need a guide to help you, to instruct you, to renew your spirit and to get you moving in the right direction on the journey of life, then you need to invite Jesus to journey with you. Because Jesus will never take you where you're not supposed to go. He will never take you where you're not supposed to go. The good news is if you ask Jesus to walk with you and stay with you, he gladly will. Let's pray. God, some of us are in a season of grief or disappointment. And we ask for you to walk with us through those days. We pray especially for the family of June Bohannon and Bill Carter. I pray, God, for anyone who is listening who may be feeling like Cleopas today, sad and confused and uncertain. And Lord, I pray that you would give a strong sense of your love and your presence with us. And God, help us if our understanding of Christ or his mission, if it's too narrow, if it's too small, like it was for Cleopas and his companion, God, would you enlarge our heart Enlarge our understanding and give us the power and the confidence and the joy to share you with others. In your name we pray. Amen.